Between 13 and 33% of the adult population have regular difficulty either getting to sleep or staying asleep. Clinicians need to know how to differentiate acute from chronic insomnia as treatment strategies differ. This week's clinical update explores how to do this and what non-pharmacological treatments are available for people with chronic symptoms. I'm joined on the phone by David Cunnington, Director of the Melbourne Sleep Disorders Centre and an author of the clinical update to find out more. David, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, no problem, Sophie. You explain in the article how common sleep problems are, but when does insomnia become chronic? So really, once people have had difficulties with sleep that are impacting on their day-to-day life for three months or more, that's when we start to consider it more as a chronic disorder. Another way of thinking of it is think of acute insomnia as a reactive or situational insomnia. Certain set of circumstances that you'd almost expect would disturb sleep, acute illness, stress, change in life circumstances, and predictably sleep gets thrown out temporarily, and then that set of circumstances passes and sleep settles back down to its previous baseline. So we think of that as acute insomnia. Whereas chronic insomnia, the symptoms are there, even though there's not that acute stimulus or acute change in circumstances. So people may feel that health is actually reasonably stable, that there's not major things going on in their life, but despite that, they're still having difficulties with sleep night after night and it's impacting on their daytime functioning. Are there some people who are more likely to develop chronic sleep problems? Yeah, there's a number of different traits about individuals that do increase the risk of developing insomnia. So that can be a tendency to anxiety. It's been an interesting paper in the last 12 months or so looking at perfectionism as a trait and increasing the risk of uh, chronic insomnia. And people with chronic health problems, be they chronic physical health problems or chronic mental health problems, such as depression and anxiety, are also at much higher risk of developing insomnia. And there are some lifestyle factors that can increase the risk of developing insomnia. So people who work shift work are at higher risk of getting sleep disturbance. Uh, In part, uh, the shift work itself can disturb circadian rhythm, but also people who work shift work are often very tired and um, almost see sleep as a precious resource and can become a little anxious about sleep. And that's one of the ways they can develop chronic insomnia. You mentioned these sort of traits to bear in mind, you know, in terms of higher risk of insomnia and also the time frame in which you want to start thinking about it. Are there any criteria that people have to fulfil before you can make a diagnosis formally of chronic insomnia or, or is it just clinical, clinical diagnosis? See, in my day to day practice as a clinician, I am thinking much more clinically and really trying to separate acute and chronic in the way I talked about before. So a situational insomnia that I expect to pass, think of that as acute, something that's persisting despite uh, acute change in circumstances, think of that as chronic. A more formal research definition would be like what's in the DSM-5, where people would have to have symptoms more than three days a week for more than three months and it to be impacting on their day-to-day functioning. I think that impact on day-to-day functioning part is actually really important because that's what differentiates sleep disturbance, for example, with chronic insomnia. So lots of us have what we'd say is sleep disturbance, that is waking at night or feeling like sleep can be disturbed, but we still function well during the day and it doesn't cause us distress or impact on our health. So that's not chronic insomnia. That may be a dissatisfaction with what the sleep experience is like, But I do think it's important that we think 
or conceptualise insomnia is it does have to have that impact on daytime functioning. Because if people are functioning well, largely it's more about resetting their expectation around sleep. And they may just have sleep disturbance that they wish they didn't have rather than an abs- a disorder. What are the other key questions that you think is important to ask when you're considering diagnosing someone with chronic insomnia? So one of the things clinically is just to get a bit of a narrative story about sleep. I really find one of the things I love about practicing the way we practice in Australia, which is similar to the United Kingdom, and uh, is we do still take a narrative history from patients. So just li- listening to people talk mm. about sleep. And if you, when you're listening to people talk about sleep, there's emotion and they're using emotional words in the way they talk about sleep. The red flag should go up that, hey, they've probably got a problem here. Because if you talk to a good sleeper and listen to how they talk about sleep, it's they don't even think about it. There's not emotion tied up in it. There's not consequences. There's not a... There's not a, if I don't sleep, this will happen. I can only sleep if these circumstances occur. So just listen to that narrative and listen to the emotion. And then once you've got a sense for that, it's a few more specific questions about what time people are getting into bed. Uh, Once they turn the lights out, then what happens? Do they wake at night? If they do, how do they go getting back to sleep? What time are they getting up in the morning? So a sense of some of that timing to make sure people are actually getting sufficient amount of sleep or not spending overly long periods of time in bed. And then it's also good to get an idea about people's behaviours around bed. So both their pre-sleep behaviours, so are they disrespectful of sleep, too much coffee too late, too much alcohol, nicotine uh, in the evening or doing other things that are going to impact on sleep, or the converse, and this is the much more common thing I see in clinical practice, are they being too careful about their sleep? And that's another red flag or a thing to, to listen out for clinically. Because if someone describes to you that, you know, my pre-sleep routine starts with this and then I move on to this and then I have to do this and then the temperature's got to be a certain way and get into bed and I've got to have everything perfectly set, it's highly likely they're going to have chronic insomnia because they'd be really overthinking, over-analytical, overly controlling around sleep. And that thinking around sleep is really then one of the targets that's going to need to be addressed to help them move forward in sleeping better. Because unless you're able to address that change in thinking and altered behaviour around sleep, their symptoms are going to persist. Mm. That's really interesting, actually, especially the emotional side of things. I hadn't thought about it from that point of view, but it's a GP, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Um, if we think about once you think someone has a you know a problem, it's impacting on their day-to-day life, How what do you explain to them? How do you tell them about sleep problems and what can be done? Yeah, so part of explaining to people a strategy or an approach for managing sleep problems uh, is getting people to recognise that if they have had difficulties with sleep and have uh, got that chronic insomnia, they usually have got some changes in the way they think about sleep mm. and changes in the way they behave about sleep. And that part of those changes in thinking and behaviour are contributing to sleep problems being perpetuated. And so to successfully manage their symptoms, they will need to be addressed as part of the treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also other medical factors for a lot of people, chronic health conditions, chronic inflammatory disorders, uh, for example, like pain uh, or some of the arthritis can cause sleep disturbance. So recognising that if people do have chronic health conditions, they also need to have an expectation in some respects that sleep's not going to be perfect. It's Mm -hmm. not going to work perfectly all of the time. And they're also not going to feel perfectly energetic all of the time because those conditions can have an impact on sleep too. 
I also try and educate people on the fact that not all causes of tiredness are tied up in sleep. Because sleep's really the tangible thing, the thing we can put our finger on that we have an experience of every single night. If we're not feeling well, sleep's often targeted as the culprit. There was this thing about my sleep and it's not perfect and that's why I'm feeling this way. But the blind spot can be nutrition, exercise, connectedness, wellness, you know, nurturing, you know, a whole range of different things. We may not be looking after ourselves in how we live through the day, but be putting the blame on sleep because it's the easily measurable, tangible thing. Mm. So that's also very important for me to emphasize to people that sleep's not necessarily the antidote for all forms of tiredness. And there are other ways of helping to manage tiredness. So if you're feeling tired and not sleeping well, sure, we, we do aim to have people sleeping better. But just by managing general health and looking after yourself, you can really negate the impact of that tiredness to a large extent. So it doesn't weigh as heavily on people. Mm. So that's some of the background. And then once I've laid that background, it really does set up for people recognising that medications are not the sole answer. Because really, medications aren't going to address any of those factors. Yeah. They'll give some give some relief and help people uh, potentially to um, get some improvement with sleep. But I sort of think of them as a holding strategy. If someone's acutely distressed and I really need to get um, help them with that distress and work through things, I will use them as a holding strategy. But it's not a fix-it strategy. And that's important for people to understand as well. So thinking of medications as potentially buying time to then work on the other strategies, which are really going to be the things that, that help. Can you tell us about those other strategies? You mentioned that CBT has quite good evidence um, in this situation. Yeah, so when I sort of talk about some of the non-drug strategies for insomnia, really that's what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. a package of treatments called cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. And it really is a package of treatments. It's not a monotherapy or a single therapy. One of the components is sleep hygiene. And that's the thing most people have heard of and often a lot of patients have done because they've accessed that information online. And that's the type of things like not exercising too late, don't drink coffee too late, uh, don't have nicotine too late, um, managing light before you go to bed at night, uh, making sure the bedroom environment's an appropriate temperature. So they're all sleep hygiene measures, sort of think of them as rules around sleep. Now, if people are initially got trouble with sleep, but they'll often get some improvement with their sleep by implementing sleep hygiene strategies. Uh, and then unfortunately what often happens is if they're still not sleeping well, they'll just put in more sleep hygiene strategies or try and do even better with those things. And so really are focusing just on one component of cognitive behavioral therapy. And really it can, if you focus too much on it, get people overly thinking and overly anxious and obsessive about their sleep. So the other important components of cognitive behavioural therapy are some behavioural components. So one's called sleep restriction. And in essence, that's trying to match the amount of time that people spend in bed uh, more to the amount of sleep they're actually getting. Uh, a normal human behaviour is if you're not sleeping well, you'll go to bed at your, sort of your aspirational sleep time, the time you wish you could sleep. But that just tends to lead to too much time awake in bed, which is fertile time for becoming conditioned to be awake in bed and getting anxious and frustrated about not sleeping. The second behavioural strategy is called stimulus control. And that's the instruction we give people if you're awake at night and wide awake and feeling frustrated, you've got to get out of bed. 
break that cycle, do something else quiet until you're feeling calm and uh, sleepy and then back to bed again. It can be a bit challenging to implement because people can be fearful that they'll actually get up and never go back to bed. So it does take a bit of reassurance that even if that does happen, the sleep debt that accumulates as part of that, they'll carry that through the next day and it'll actually help sleep come together on subsequent nights. Some of the cognitive strategies or more thinking strategies of uh, cognitive behavioural therapy are relaxation strategies. And in years gone by, we would have focused more on things like progressive muscular relaxation or those type of relaxation strategies and maybe even use them as a pre-sleep type of relaxation strategy. We've really shifted away from that and think of it now much more as more than relaxation. Um, We've learned a lot from mindfulness and how it's used in other conditions and really want to cultivate for people feeling comfortable doing nothing. And in our busy modern world, not many of us are comfortable (laughs) with just stopping stopping and doing nothing it's not a Mm. skill that we cultivate Uh, and we've also learned that that sort of doing nothing taking the foot off the accelerator you know turning off that adrenergic drive or that sympathetic drive temporarily it's not just about what happens just before you go to bed in fact it's more about how you go across the day Mm. and i very commonly see people in practice who proudly tell me you know they run on nervous energy and i'm like a busy bee and run from one thing to the next like many of us are, and then seem puzzled when, you know, come 10 p.m. and they want to go to bed, they don't, within a minute or two, seem to be able to transform into something that just the adrenaline switches off like there's some machine. Mm. We almost sort of have this belief that we're machine-like in modern society, we can just switch off. But running on nervous energy through the day really does mean it takes a while for that to dissipate, and we do need to cultivate that strategy. Mm. And then another one of the cognitive strategies, it's part of CBT is called cognitive therapy. Think of that as challenging uh, beliefs around sleep. And that's, they're the sort of beliefs you hear in that narrative history. So someone says, I've never been a good sleeper. My mother told me I was always a terrible sleeper. And this is someone who's had insomnia for 20 years, largely because of that belief structure that was instilled in them from an early age, that they're just not a good sleeper. So listen for those beliefs. The other types of beliefs can be, if I don't sleep well tonight, I'm going to perform poorly at work tomorrow and I'll be disciplined or my job will be in jeopardy or there'll be some other consequences. And our approach to that is a a cognitive approach, things like thought restructuring or challenging those thoughts and beliefs. Um, So really challenging somebody, hey, biologically, you're a healthy 40-year-old your neurological mechanisms for sleep are actually not broken and neurologically you are actually capable of sleeping. Um, So try and replace some of that established belief or saying to people, you know, you know what, you've had this problem for five years. That means it's been over a thousand days you've gone to work with that fear that you're going to be disciplined. How many times has that fear actually materialized? Well, it's actually never materialized. So trying to just reframe some of those thoughts. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very interesting in the review how you, you said, you sort of iterate that it's important to um, talk to people about when they say they've had CBT and it maybe hasn't worked for them, just just explore that a bit more because it really is the whole package that they need and not just one aspect. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
and almost everyone who comes to see me in specialist practice, mm. so by that stage they've seen their general practitioner and tried a number of strategies and still having trouble, so been referred on. Yeah. yeah, by the time someone comes to see me in specialist practice, that's almost always what they say. I've tried everything. Yeah. But when, when I do tease it out and say, okay, which components of non-drug strategies have you tried, it often just boils down to sleep hygiene. Yeah. And then when that, that didn't work, I did a bit more sleep hygiene or a couple of other rules. Mm-hmm. So it is important to tease out, you know, if people have done things before and they're saying, look, that's not going to work for me because I've done it before, mm. yeah, they may well have only done one part of it. And yeah, as monotherapy, the research shows some of the strategies can be helpful as monotherapy, but really in the last 20 years, we've used it as a combination therapy, and that's where the research evidence is really the strongest. Mm. You said obviously already that there is sometimes a place for pharmacological therapy in in the acute management of people who are very distressed. Is there ever a place for medication in the management of chronic insomnia? Yeah, there is. So whilst I'm a really strong advocate for non-drug strategies, they're not 100% effective in 100% of people. Mm. And we've still got work to do in improving those strategies and making them more effective. Uh, And so there are a proportion of people who will get a partial response to cognitive behavioural therapy. Commonly, uh, they're people who do have comorbid physical illnesses that we would expect would disturb sleep or comorbid psychiatric illnesses that we'd expect would have sleep disturbance as part of it. I'll absolutely uh, work through a CBT approach and work through all the non-drug strategies. And that's often helpful in terms of reducing both distress and reducing the intensity of insomnia symptoms. Mm. But a proportion of people may have ongoing symptoms of insomnia that are impacting on their day-to-day functioning. And that's when I'd potentially look at uh, adding in a medication. Mm. I'd like to move away just from the content of the review a little bit, just to ask you about how you prepared for this. I know that you reached out to a patient group on Facebook um, and, and got some feedback from them. What what sort of themes came through when you were asking questions? What did you ask them and, and what sort of what came back that informed the review? Yeah, so really the question was if I was to write something for health professionals about insomnia, mm-hmm. what do you wish your doctor would know? Yeah. That, that was essentially the question. Um, because I do get a lot of uh, that sort of commentary from people. So I really wanted to tease that out. And the yeah. themes that came through was people really wanting to emphasise that sleep problems are common mm-hmm. with many other comorbidities. And people wrote about, you know, with renal failure, sleep problems are common. With joint problems, sleep problems are common. Really emphasising that, you know, they may be seeing their healthcare practitioner or and GP for some chronic medical conditions that have been managed over a number of years, but have never actually been asked about the sleep problems, or if they were asked about them, never actually given any assistance with managing or recognition mm-hmm. that the sleep problems are actually having a significant impact mm-hmm. on them. So that was really the theme that came through, some recognition that sleep is a symptom that causes people a lot of distress and occurs commonly with a lot of the chronic chronic medical conditions that um, people in general practice uh, would see on a day-to-day basis. I think that certainly has come through in the review and I think hopefully this will prompt people to to think more in in that frame of mind. Um, And finally, David, I'd just like to know, are there any new treatments or therapies on the horizon for chronic insomnia that we should be looking out for? Yeah, as I was talking about, the CBT doesn't work 100% of the time for 100% of people. So we are always looking for what could we add Mm -hmm. to that. Some of the other strategies that we're looking to adding in the non-drug strategies are are strategies like mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been some small studies uh, looking at 
combining mindfulness with CBT, uh, showing that's effective. They're too small to show whether it's an additive effect or exactly the magnitude of the effect. But we think when we think about the cognitions and the way people with chronic insomnia think, and we think it as a chronic disease model, uh, we think strategies like mindfulness should be helpful. And so far, early research is showing that it is helpful. Mm. There's also a lot of basic science work going on looking at the effect of light on both sleep timing. Uh, so we think of that as circadian rhythm disorders, but more recently in insomnia and uh, looking potentially at some a subset of people with insomnia having their symptoms contributed to by uh, an irregular or disrupted phase of their circadian rhythm. So their circadian rhythm being a little bit out of sync with their sleep-wake behaviour patterns. So strategies around light and realigning their circadian rhythm may well be things over the next few years that we incorporate into our therapy for insomnia. Not quite ready for prime time and not something we're doing routinely, but the research is certainly suggesting that's something we'll increasingly do over the next few years. David, thank you for joining me today. And you can read the full clinical update on chronic insomnia, diagnosis and non-pharmacological management on the bmj.com now.